0: Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, listeners. I am so happy that you're with me today as I welcome May of Almond and Fig to the podcast. I'm hoping that together we will all honor her grandmother, her beloved Tata. May's grandmother was born in Palestine long before 1948, when the international community took it upon themselves to declare parts of her Palestine as the new nation of Israel. She was a young woman, and then a mother, as she saw Israel's boundaries expand and expand while her own land and rights diminished. And she was already a grandmother many times over by the first intifada of 1987, when both of her sons were arrested. One of those sons, May's father, was imprisoned for over a year with no charges or evidence against him. He was imprisoned in the Negev Desert, and at night, he and his fellow prisoners took shifts staying awake to watch for the dangerous animals that surrounded them. Later, Teta Umhama's grandsons, May's brothers, were arrested in the Second Intifada, and although they were juveniles, they were tried and imprisoned as adults. At the end of her life, Teta Umhana's ambulance was stopped and searched by Israeli soldiers as she was rushed dying into Jerusalem. This is a very difficult thing for any family to accept. However, we do not join May today in honoring Teta Umhana because she suffered these things. Rather, we honor her because of the things she did with her life, the things that she built. She raised her own siblings, her children, and her many grandchildren with love and patience. She joined countless other Palestinian women in preserving their culture and recipes, in becoming breadwinners, nurturing children made fatherless through resistance, and feeding everyone in their entire worlds. And how did she manage to do all of these things? Well, May tells us she did them through her garden, her cooking, and the joy that she took in both of those things and passed along to May. Regardless of any of our politics, which may be influenced by May's powerful story today, listener, you and I are coming together to honor this small but very mighty woman, Teta Amhana, and the many other Palestinian women that she represents. Here is May. So let's just start with that.
1: Tell yes. me about your Teta. Honestly, Becky, it was the hardest summer. This is the first time I've I've experienced going to Palestine without my grandmother being alive okay. or being present. Mm-hmm. She passed away last summer, and it's been uh, and I thought it it the the days ease the pain. Yes, it, you, they go on, but her memory becomes more and more vivid, and it's I want her in my life in everything I do. And um, mm-hmm. Teta was a wonderful woman. She mm-hmm. she was soft spoken. She was. um, She loved her grandkids. She loved her children. She loved her family. There was nothing more important in her life than her family. Mm. Um, From the the minute she wakes up, she thinks what everyone should be eating and how (laughs) she she just she had something about her. Her presence made you feel loved. Uh, Mm. She didn't have to do much to. She's not the teta that played board games with us, but she's also the teta that made us feel loved in everything she's done. The care, the way she handles herself. her wise words. Teta wasn't highly educated. In mm-hmm. fact, her um, pet peeve in life was that she didn't speak English. She was so bothered mm-hmm. that really? yes, she my my family. You know, we grew up speaking Arabic. I grew up in Palestine mm-hmm. on the outskirts of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and um, my parents were very involved. And um, there was always people who spoke a different language that coming in and out of our houses, mm-hmm. and Teta got bothered so much that. She didn't speak English, but Theta didn't realize that it wasn't. She didn't need to speak English or do math or do all this stuff to be such a wise woman. She was so right. wise right. that all of us kind of looked to her for for guidance in so many things in life. Mm-hmm. And I was blessed because I grew up right next to her. I mean, our mm-hmm. house was a, like a tri level. We shared the, her huge garden, and we lived right beneath her. And it was so I had the honor that we lived so close to her, to share that wisdom, to share that love on mm-hmm. the daily basis. And you know what? I didn't realize that it's going to carry me through life. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until I left home um, in uh, to go to college that I realized how much, mm-hmm. I mean, I've always Knew how much data is important to us, but it wasn't until I left home, and mm-hmm. then after her departure, that you realize what a what a what a what a treasure she was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, yes, such a blessing you did have all those years, but it makes it harder.
1: Yes. And people say, you're lucky you got, it's it true, but I, it, it made it that much harder. Of course. Um, Love so deep makes it so hard to kind of move on because it's, you know, we were surrounded by memories and she always, like I said, she wasn't the Teta that played board games or mm-hmm. took you shopping, but she was the Teta that took care of you when you were sick. She, mm-hmm. she knew how you feel and she always had the cure, <laughs> you know, Teta had the cure. <laughs> Even in fact, my, my daughter sprained her ankle uh, at my parents' house On my dad goes, let's do the tata way and he took his olive oil soap and warm water and massaged her ankle and just the thought of like how we carry her through our lives and oh we, yes yeah and, yeah it's she, she's she was so brilliant and I wish yes. you know she thought you know English was her obstacle but I wish she knew that she was um so much more than that oh
0: Yes. Yes. Um, was she the one who were your parents working? And so she was taking care of you, um, like on day to day
1: or. It took care of us regardless who's working, who's not. (laughs) She's somebody. It was in her. She couldn't help it. No, she couldn't help it. But you know, we, um, growing up in Palestine, we, we went through a lot of hardships. My family went Personally, went through a lot of hardship. My my father was arrested um, in the 80s, in the first Intifada, mm-hmm. so during those times, Teta and uh, definitely stepped in. She had mm-hmm. to help my mother care for us. But all of our lives, she was part of. Even from the birth on, she mm-hmm. was always part of our lives, nourishing us, whether it's food uh Tata never made something that she didn't share with with her family, and we were mm-hmm. so lucky because we were just underneath so she would make a pot of soup, we would be the first to get it she would make jam, we would get six jars, she would make mm-hmm. pickles we you know mm-hmm. her her love language was so you, would, you uh, back then when I was little, I thought it was just a jar of jam. I just thought of a jar of pickle. But then as I moved on in life and became an adult myself and a mother, I realized that these things instilled in me is the love for home, for connection, mm. for nurturing mm. uh, people, for cooking for them. Um, yeah. So yes, she was part of our lives in so many yeah. ways. Um, growing yeah. up. Yeah, and I think
0: of her as a as a. I mean, I'm not a grandparent. I'm still a parent.
1: <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> but I've heard I've heard from friends that this um, feeling to make everything okay is almost like doubled. From a grandparent as, oh as it goodness. is from a parent, which is a pretty incredible thing because as parents, you and I both know there's nothing. There's this instinct in us that we just desperately, desperately want to make everything okay. And so I'm so empathetic <sighs> to her that she's seeing her son. Is this your maternal or paternal? She's she's, she's my father's. Mother, okay. Yeah. So she's seeing her son suffer yeah. in this terrible. Her sons, in fact. She's the sons. Could Okay, so Two of her sons
1: actually were in prison during the first intifada, and she took care okay. of both families and different ages and different. And I oh. remember my other uncle was jailed for a longer mm. for a longer period of time. So she took on uh, my cousins as well, Fares wow. and Ahmed, and she helped raise them. They were younger than us, wow. and then we had um, uh, the Gulf War, mm. and we were kind of like we had to pulled together as a family once again so Mm -hmm. that was after the first intifada. there were so many uh, incidents in our life or tragic events that actually we all had to pull together and Mm -hmm. teta was the anchor she was the one that you know would you know would help pull all of us together and kept Mm -hmm. the family going for a long time Mm -hmm. this is during my lifetime but before that teta had a lot of children and teta before even her own children she had to raise her own um Siblings. Of siblings. Mm-hmm. Teta had a long, rough life, and she, mm-hmm. um, she came originally from Nablus. So is my grandfather. They both mm-hmm. came from Nablus, settled in Jerusalem because my grandfather wanted to pursue better education. Mm-hmm. He, he was an agricultural engineer, and mm-hmm. you know Jerusalem was the big the big city. So they mm-hmm. he came, um, to pursue his work and education in agricultural engineering, and then after that, they bought a house in Al Qatamon. Al Qatamon is a was back in before 67 it was a predominantly Christian neighborhood in mm. east in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um after the 67 war Israel took over that home um mm. and we lost it. So my grand my grandparents had to pull their act together and find a new home, which is in Aram now. Um, mm-hmm. My grandfather had his heart set on a house with a big lot, so mm-hmm. he can be uh, practicing his um, agriculture and planting a mm-hmm. the garden. They both had a passion for the land. They, always, they, they are the ones that taught us this this deep connection to the land and to love the land and nurture the land. So he had to buy a lot outside of Jerusalem uh, mm-hmm. to accommodate the space he wants. And that's wow. home. That's been home since that's then. Your but home. We... So Teta survived the forty the eight war, the sixty seven war, the, you know, the, Intifada, yeah. the second Intifada. Yeah.
0: What I'm definitely hearing is to understand the depth of her love and the way that food was a healing, truly nurturing gift. I think we should just go through um, the history. Let's let's jump to that. And then we'll kind of come back and talk about how she food was a salve, you know, a, to it was a way of binding up, you know, these wounds and ministering to them. So can can we talk about this? Um, so first of all, I, I put this in the questions here in the yes. US, we're just always used to hearing the Israeli Palestinian conflict, the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Um, do you think that's an accurate term? And then let's go through the major historical events
1: for Palestine.
0: Really, that all occurred in your Teta's life.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. In order, mm-hmm. here's my take: in order okay. for this to be a conflict, it would have to have equal sides mm. um, of power. This mm-hmm. is not a conflict because there are no equal powers mm-hmm. um in this equation. Th- this is a military occupation. It's mm-hmm. a it's a system. It's a cruel system of domination mm-hmm. and injustice. Mm-hmm. It is not a conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, this is called military occupation. So mm-hmm. this, we're talking over 70 years uh, since yes. 1948 mm-hmm. um, of land being confiscated. People are being evicted. Homes are being demolished. Mm-hmm. Settlements are being built on people's land and homes, uh, arresting and killing people. Mm-hmm. In order for this to be a conflict, I want to remind people that in this equation, Israel remains the occupier, we're occupied. Palestinians are occupied. Mm-hmm. Israel is the oppressor. We're the oppressed. This is not an equal, um, an equal equation. So in
0: 1948, when mostly European Jews, right? Um, right. coming from the lands where they were um where the Holocaust occurred, when they landed. Um, in in this land? And had they and, been invited by the Palestinians? Was, yeah, was what's there... What's
1: amazing yeah. is prior to 48, mm-hmm. my grandmother would recall stories of Jews coming to Palestine mm-hmm. as, you know, they would come as back then they would tour she would mm-hmm. tell me that they would come from house to house try to sell goods Palestinians as a community were very welcoming people we mm-hmm. take people in we love to nurture like i said mm-hmm. so it's a trait not just of my grandmother it's a trait of Palestinian yes. culture mm-hmm. we're very nurturing we're very hospitable we we take people in we love to feed them so prior to that maybe the people that would come um, including the uh, Eastern Europeans and the Europeans mm-hmm. that would come to Jerusalem to mm-hmm. to to do to do the pilgrimage, what mm-hmm. they called it, they were welcomed. And uh, but then 48 happened, where Israel occupied, you know, started evicting, taking over Palestinian land, and mm-hmm. actually kicking and moving and evicting people mm-hmm. out of their homes. Seven hundred fifty thousand Palestinians. So these people yeah. thought they would go home they mm-hmm. thought they w- the war would start and then they would eventually go home it, it it started right there um and then after that there's the 1967 where they started so this was in you know land in haifa jerusalem mm-hmm. um where um, israel is now right mm-hmm. but then 67 happened again and the story repeated itself and, up, and up, let's define the word nakba nakba in arabic another word for catastrophe it was mm-hmm. a catastrophe so mm-hmm. many people lost their homes so many people lost their lives so many people got separated in 1967 mm-hmm. where israel occupied the west bank gaza and east jerusalem forcing another 300 000 palestinians outside mm-hmm. of their homes mm-hmm. so now you're talking about between 1948 and now, there's about 7 million Palestinian refugees worldwide, mm-hmm. making it mm-hmm. one of the biggest refugee crises in the world. Mm-hmm. And then you get uh, 87 when the first intifada started. And this is on my time. I was born in 1977. So I was what, 10 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so 1977. And then the subtle, since then, this whole system of Nekba repeated itself so many times in the Palestinian history. And I, I want to remind people that since 1948 till the present day, this is a day-to-day occupation. What Mm -hmm. we see here in the media, if we see it, is when they bomb Gaza. Mm -hmm. But this is a day-to-day occupation, and this Mm -hmm. is a one-sided occupation. It affects all aspects of Palestinian life. Right. So to
0: give as many details as possible to, to what happened in 1948, I think is important. So if we go back to there, you know, you said Palestinians, they didn't invite Eastern European refugees. Where was the international community? in all of this.
1: You know, I mean, the international community participated in this right. whole uh, apartheid regime. I mean, starting mm-hmm. with with uh, the British mandate, starting with mm-hmm. all this stuff. They they've allowed, you know, this is we're paying the Palestinians have paid for something they have never committed. Mm-hmm. We did not commit the Holocaust. The Palestinians mm-hmm. did not participate in the Holocaust. In fact, mm-hmm. there was there was uh, Arab Jews that lived in Palestine uh, mm-hmm. prior to that. So Palestinians did not participate in the Holocaust. Yet we mm-hmm. are paying for something. We weren't. Um, we weren't part of. We did mm-hmm. not create.
0: Describe more about this um, British law. Tell, tell us about that.
1: This whole creation of the mm-hmm. state of Israel was mm-hmm. really a violent process. It, mm-hmm. it, in order for it to establish a Jewish majority state, there had to be, um, ex, you know, ex, expulsion of hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of Palestinians from their home homeland. Mm-hmm. This ideology, a political ideology of Zionism, mm-hmm. um, started in the late 19th century. It, it's almost that they, um, on the belief that Jews deserve their own land, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they deserve, but then they chose Palestine to give them Palestine with the British mandate to give them Palestine as to establish that mm-hmm. um, that that place that they could call home. Uh, British occupied Palestine. Britain divided Britain and France. They wanted to divide up the Middle East for their imperial interests, right? So then, the then this, is before 1948? this is before
0: nineteen forty-eight.
1: This is before nineteen forty-eight. So okay. it was under the British mandate, right? Okay. So and then you mm. you had um, Britain over uh, Palestine and. Mm. Um, France over Libya and other countries Um, so they wanted to divide up but before that um, in between 1920 and 1947 the British issued the Belfort the the famous Belfort Declaration and Mm -hmm. what it is is they are promising to help establish a Palestinian national home right Mm -hmm. and to establish to make an establishment for uh, Jewish people in Palestine so this is, we have to go back to, like, way back in history to understand 1948.
0: Right. It couldn't have happened if there wasn't prior colonization of Palestine Absolutely. by the British. So the British exactly. didn't feel, the British felt it was theirs to give.
1: And then they support, exactly. And then mm. they supported, Europe supported this whole Zionist uh, goals mm-hmm. to establish a Jewish home.
0: And one thing I've heard, um... My husband, John, people are used to hearing about him, but one thing I've heard John's aunt say many times, and I think it's a really important distinction, I'm curious what you think, is that Mm -hmm. there's a distinction in her mind between um, Judaism, which is a religion, and Zionism, which is a political movement. And to oppose Zionism does not mean to oppose Judaism
1: Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes. This is this is this is a fabrication of Israel that they've mixed both in order mm-hmm. to confuse the world and then call people anti-Semitic if they don't mm-hmm. if they don't support Zionism. Mm-hmm. There are so many Jews that lived in the Arab world, whether mm-hmm. it's in Palestine, Syria, Iraq. Um, mm-hmm. There were Jews living side by side their Arab mm-hmm. neighbors, mm-hmm. like there are Christians, but they are Muslims, mm-hmm. and you know. So it is not the 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 the, the, the Zionists the Zionist movement um created this whole campaign of mixing mm-hmm. ethnicity with faith.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's I think a really really helpful thing for people to understand. Um exactly. because I think Rightfully, many of us think of religion as a as a sacred thing that we don't want to impinge upon. yeah, yeah, I think I think that's important to say, and I think we've said that let's go so that it's called the infantada, yeah.
1: Intifada. Intifada in Arabic, it's literally uprising. People mm. uproared and got that's it. They can't Mm -hmm. take it anymore and um, hell broke loose. So we can't, when we look at Palestinian history, we can't just look at 87. We can't look Mm -hmm. at 67. We have to look at the entire history that this Mm -hmm. became a day-to-day occupation since 1948, and a one-sided mm-hmm. occupation since 1948. Mm-hmm. So continuously from 48, they would continue to evict villages, evict people, mm-hmm. arrest people, um, you know, forbid them from uh, building settlements and taking mm-hmm. over people's roads, um, doing mm-hmm. checkpoints. So for me. In 1980, when the Intifada started being loose, things got even tighter. The checkpoints Mm -hmm. got tighter. People's travel became more restrained. Uh, Life became a little bit more unbearable. And I remember, actually, it's funny because as a child, I remember that how my life changed pretty dramatically and pretty quickly i remember as a 10 year old you're aware of what's happening i remember going you know on vacations like normal kids we would go to the sea we would go on like picnics uh, my grand my uncle was the the king of picnics we would go barbecue by the sea we would do all these things and then all of a sudden at, the, at in 87 no matter how our family tried to protect us we it affected our whole entire life system um, and I knew life wasn't normal anymore. I mean, it wasn't even, you know, that life for me changed even more drastically when my father was arrested. But before that, even just as a child, there's days where we couldn't go to school because of closures. There was days when we were so scared because on the way home from school, there would be tear gas bombs And that as a child, you know, smelling tear gas, hearing bullets, life changed. Life became so dramatically different for me in 19, um, in 1987.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So between 1948 and 1987, when this happened, what how much had boundaries changed?
1: dramatically. I I would mm-hmm. love actually I don't know if I can or you can show this I'm going to send you a map that shows yeah, Palestine. Yeah, I'll definitely post it, post it in the show notes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to send you a map of how Palestine. I mean even mm-hmm. me as a Palestinian who was born and raised in Palestine when I go back to Jerusalem year after year mm-hmm. I don't I start I'm starting not to recognize the mm-hmm. structure of the city. I don't know even how to drive a car between my home in Aram to Jerusalem straight. I wouldn't know mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And I am somebody who went to school back and forth to Jerusalem on the daily for 17 years. Now, when we go back, it's so hard for us to navigate through the roads because they keep on changing the settlements. The roads keep being confiscated to build these and mm-hmm. the land keeps uh, getting confiscated to kind mm-hmm. of build and expand on these settlements. Mm-hmm. You just don't recognize it anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So what what um, position were your parents in? What was their um, role and why was your father arrested?
1: My parents, like everyone else, I mean, p- people, um, this is an occupation. People are taking mm-hmm. over your livelihood. So there's mm-hmm. going to be a resistance. Mm-hmm. People are going to protest. They're going to resist. Mm-hmm. And uh, and even, uh, it's funny we were talking about this the other day, even the thought of carrying, I mean, you've probably seen this all over social media that they, you know Israelis yanking Palestinian flags and getting mm-hmm. so angry at the kafiyah and even Shireen Abu Abakla's funeral, they mm-hmm. weren't allowed to raise the flag. Even mm-hmm. these little signals during the First Intifada were forbidden. Mm-hmm. You were forbidden to carry the Palestinian and flag. You were forbidden to carry anything with the word Palestine on it. Mm. So anything my parents could have done or spoke or did is mm. gonna be um, is um, is gonna be used against them. Obviously. Mm. So my father was part of a political party. It was uh, Hizb and mm. he was arrested for his beliefs. And he, he was arrested because he they were thought that he was mobilizing. They used mm. to resist the occupation.
0: Mm-hmm. Which and
1: for in- that alone, yes.
0: Mm. Well, which in fact, I mean even if he was at least in the us like this is what we were founded on is resistance
1: is resistance and you know it's uh, so i remember vividly how he was arrested mm. and the, the how scared you f- you had felt. I mean, all of a sudden, were you there and
0: like the moment I
1: was so? home. I was. Mm. We were all home. In fact, he was arrested in the middle of the night because mm. that's the easiest way. In, in so many of these um, house invasion, house arrests happen in the middle of the night because mm. they don't want resistance. They don't want people to come around. They don't want the neighbors to. Uh, and what happened is they had later on. We found out that they drove the jeeps into our neighborhood. It's a very uh, populated neighborhood. It's not like mm. we have so much space. People live mm-hmm. so close to one another. Um, they had come into our house. They had positioned um um uh soldiers on the roofs of the neighbors mm. homes i mean my this is not i'm talking it's as if there's no military resistance here at this point right in 87 it was people were protesting with words with with uh um uh protests in the streets, signs rocks this is it this was it mm. there was mm. no military protest at the time
0: mm. i mean so, in many ways um, the laws speak for themselves you can't have a flag
1: no, you can't have a flag. You can't mm-hmm. even have. I remember that even like when we we call them mensurat. Like even if you would pass out uh, things that would speak against, you know, against occupation, mm-hmm. or you know, here there's a protest today against them uh, taking over this this house in Sheikh Jarrah. Mm-hmm. You could be arrested for a long time just for carrying that. I remember mm-hmm. I was hit on, I mean, just to put it in perspective, mm-hmm. I was going to Jerusalem and we would take a bus from our house in Jerusalem. It's about fifteen miles, mm-hmm. um 15 mile bus ride. And I remember it, the, the time change. you know how we do the time change mm-hmm. uh, in Palestine, the Israelis decided to do the time change different on a different day than the Palestinians. Mm. So when we go to school, they would they would stop you and look at your watch. If your watch had the Palestinian time, you would be slapped. Wow. I mean, this is how, this is, a, a, I'm talking about a 12 year old. I was probably 12 at the time. This is how brutal and how unfair, just to put it in perspective. I mean, we're seeing Gaza and bombs now, right? But mm. like even when I say day-to-day occupation, it's in everything you have done. Mm. And this
0: is helping me understand a little bit more. Also, I didn't quite understand when you said before, you know, racial cleansing, ethnic cleansing. I was like, oh, I that's kind of new to me because I'm thinking it's about the land. But when you're saying when you're saying there's an offense taken, if you are not submitting to something as trivial as Mm -hmm. um, their definition of when you want to change time. Right. This is what we see happening, for instance, in Russian occupied parts of Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm.
1: It's, it's, this is what we see. And sadly, um, the world isn't taking note that the Palestinian struggle has is 70 years old. Right. You know, there's there's so much footage of celebrating how Ukrainians are defending their, their country right. and their land. Um, you know, they're being um heroes for defending right. the Palestinians are considered terrorists for fighting back right. or resisting right. the occupation. Right. So, so we weren't even mm-hmm. allowed to say the national anthem. We weren't allowed, like, our school celebrations to raise a flag. They wanted to erase Palestine and Palestinians.
0: Mm-hmm. And because your father refused to do that, he was arrested. Most
1: Palestinians, all Palestinians refused to do that. Mm-hmm. This is, he was, so he was arrested because they, they're afraid of mobilizing the youth. They're afraid mm-hmm. of resistance. So they, mm-hmm. they would arrest and shut up anyone that would have any anything uh, that had to do with anything like that. So he was arrested in 87. And it's so funny because they had sent so many soldiers to arrest him. And my dad had said, I'm not that important. Mm. I'm not that important. And it's funny because then it, um, I'm going to say something a little bit later about Hamas. But then they're like, oh, maybe we they, you know, during the the, the court system, they would think, um, they would say, like, we thought you're a member of Hamas. Well, my father is Christian. Mm. So mm-hmm. I mean, everything is built upon um, lies and And, and Hamas is they,
0: is is entirely
1: Muslim. Is entirely Muslim? Yes, definitely, okay. definitely. So when they, um, I'm going to go back to that night mm-hmm. when they arrested my father. It was, um, it was in 1987. Um, he, they came obviously in the middle of the night uh, to arrest him, and we were asleep. And we had heard the the, what the, the boot kick uh, to the door, and then we saw flat, our house is really small. It's a two bedroom house, and they the, we my mom and father had saw uh, the flashlights through the windows, so they knew they knew exactly what's happening. Um, so they um, my father had my mom had prepared him that he's going to be gone for a long time. She had um, given him an extra jacket, and and I remember my brother actually peeing in his bed. He mm. probably was. I'm going to say six at the time. Mm-hmm. It, it was so terrifying that my mom had mm-hmm. asked us to stay. I, I remember having the bunk beds, and I was on the top bunk, and my mom had said, Whatever you do, pretend you're sleeping. Mm. So here you are, a child of 10 years old, waking up in the middle of the night to see soldiers wrapped up with these, you know, helmets, boots, and machine guns in the middle of your bedroom in because our my bedroom my parents bedroom and our bedroom open they were really close to each other and there was mm-hmm. just a kitchen and living room our house was really small mm-hmm. so these soldiers filled our house and we had to pretend we're sleeping mm. this for me was very very dramatic as a child and it's a, it's a feeling it's a feeling that I I, I don't think I could forget mm-hmm. um shortly after that my um uh, we didn't know uh, where they uh, where. Where they have taken my father? So my mom started fabricating these stories that he is. Uh, she would actually write because we didn't know. I mean, they they. It's very usual for them to arrest people and take them away and not not know where they are.
0: These are. This is not due Absolutely. process. No. This is nothing no. to do with due process.
1: No, uh, nothing. Nothing. Um, yeah, no, nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, after 89, my father was arrested in 89, not 87. So in 89, then my mom would start sending, like all of a sudden we would receive letters from my father. But later in life, we found out that my mother actually was the one writing these letters to comfort us that my father was okay. We had no, my mom had no idea where my father was.
0: How do you feel about that?
1: I um in a way I'm glad my mom did that, but I also like feel so like even now like my voice shakes thinking about it that she had to, she we were didn't. four children at the time, she had to take the burden of all this by herself. And this is what I mean. But my grandmother was such an important part of our bring Shh. our upbringing. She was the shoulder wow. to lean on, she was the shoulder to cry on. Um, and yeah. she was she was an incredible force for my own mother. My I mean, you're talking a mom of four had to bear um life without her husband and even not knowing where her husband was mm-hmm. um to take care of us my mom um shortly after started thinking that she has to better our lives and then she enrolled in a in a she my mom wasn't didn't go to college at that time so she mm-hmm. enrolled in a college program in Beit um my my grandmother stepped in and helped raise us or be you know be, do the day-to-day things for us while my mom would go and uh get Pursue better education, better education, and in the same time, my mom found a job to be uh, in um, uh, to work at a daycare center. Mm. So my mom was juggling a job, um, school, mm. and four children at the time, and it, the economic burdens of not having my father available mm. at the time. And my father, then um, after months, my father, we found out that he was sent to a prison. A is a desert. So he. Uh, it's in the south of Palestine. That prison, it's called Ansar Free, and that prison is now closed, um, was forced to shut down because of the hostile environment and the terrible conditions of that prison. Wow. So it wasn't just my mother. It was all Palestinian mothers. And we see it till today that they had to bear the effects of this oppression, the Israeli oppression. Um, and they're the ones who made, honestly, the greatest sacrifices. It's the mother that we see weeping over their children in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Nablus, in Jerusalem, and all over Palestine. Mm-hmm. But even as a, as a child at the time, I was 12 and 89. Even my sister and I had to bear the consequences of this mm. occupation. We, we because my mom had to step out to to better our lives and to be to to find my father and to, to hassle the lawyers and the courts. Mm. Um, we also had to take responsibility as home. At twelve year olds in America, what would they be doing? What do my kids mm. do now when they're mm-hmm. twelve? They, they're busy doing summer camps, swimming, doing uh, like piano lessons. At twelve years old, I was cooking in the kitchen, doing homework with my brothers who are one was uh, four years younger than me. One was. Six, year, six years younger than me. So my sister and I took incredible responsibility to to do the house chores. Um, I mean, I can't even get my kids to to do their dishes on time or put, a, put you know, and just to think of it this way. And it's funny because I remember um, as an adult or I don't know if that's an adult. When I came to college, I was 18. Uh, I'm going to jump into that. I remember mm-hmm. so vividly them asking me at a, at a campus event. We were freshmen and they are, they said, what are your hobbies? Hmm. And it took me a minute because I never spent time thinking Hmm. of hobbies. In fact, Hmm. I don't even know if anybody ever asked me if I had hobbies. I mean, Hmm. growing up, it was all about survival. It wasn't Hmm. hobbies. We didn't have time for hobbies. So I think I remember blurting out cooking. Hmm. And cooking wasn't cool back then because there was no Rachel Ray. There was no Food Network. Hmm. There was no Instagram. Cooking wasn't a thing. It was for housewives. It was for Hmm. uh, grandma. You didn't Hmm. cook. Mm. And I remember blurting out cooking, but I'm so glad that later in life, I did make cooking my hobby and actually a platform to share and tell these stories of Palestine and Palestinians. Mm.
0: This is so powerful.
1: How how long was your dad in
0: prison in the end?
1: Um, my dad was in prison uh, six months with, where, uh, where we didn't know where he was, six, uh, 12 months
0: and then yeah. did they release him because they just couldn't find a charge against him or what it was it totally arbitrary when people went in and when they came out
1: yes i mean it was it she had lawyers um his uh yeah they had lawyers fight on his behalf there's nothing he did nothing he, there's nothing that they can establish that he has done
0: right again it's it's really it's more about terrorizing people it's an example. It's, it's about, example,
1: and it's about it's, breaking families. Yeah. Um, Becky, it's about breaking families, yeah. uh, breaking the households, breaking the the head of the household.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. um yeah. I mean, I remember my fa- my father never really spoke about prison. It was mm. very traumatizing for him too. Mm. They, uh, My mom, I remember, she, he just told me this uh, last summer when I was in Palestine that he, on a road trip to visit my sister in Nazareth, and I don't know what, just opened the subject and he started blurting things out. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm actually getting shivers thinking about it. He would say, my mom would send him pictures of us, but he mm. would trip them because he didn't want to be reminded because he wants to hold himself together. He doesn't want to mm. see us, you know, he doesn't mm-hmm. want to know that how much he missed out on his mm. children. So he never hung them in his little tent. Mm. And they would threaten him that they raped his wife, that they but then they had to remain strong. They had to oh really my word and they he told me even that they had to take shifts watching the ground because I'm telling you, this is a desert. This is desert conditions. They live they put them in tents. So they had to take turns in the tent, um they had to take turns watching for snakes at night mm. so they can sleep. Hmm.
0: My word Do you still have nightmares From that night
1: um, I don't have nightmares About that night I have nightmares About that This is still ongoing
0: Yes It's So yes. for me
1: When I see these children hmm. um, Being arrested I mean it, uh, hmm. I, I think Israel Is the only country I mean I'm jumping into But Israel is the only country In the world I'm taking my brothers now too Like it, my my mind Keeps jumping um, Israel is the only country in the world that tries children in military court because this story didn't end for my family in eighty nine. The story repeated itself with my uncle again being arrested and he was younger than my father. Then in two thousand the second intifada, which was in two thousand, my brother, both my brothers in two thousand and one, both were arrested in the same night. Both of your brothers, both of my brothers. This was in the Second Intifada. So the story didn't stop there. For me, the nightmare is that this story is ongoing. It affected my father, my my brothers, and it's affecting so many Palestinian children, families, households, in every aspect of life. When my brother was arrested, he was 17 years old at the time, and the other one was 16. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: These are the same brothers that you taught. And cooked yes. for when your dad was in prison. Yes. They're like your, bro- your brother your brother's sons. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh my word. Are and they, uh... actually we joke about that now because uh my sister actually they so they had my brother had spent the first six months in Israeli jails, and because of their age, they weren't put in military, there there's no military jails, so they would put them in criminal jails to make it even worse. So they're exposed to people with heroin. Uh, they're exposed to people who are thieves. They're exposed to people who are all kinds of things.
0: But then, and, and these um, are for equally equally trivial offenses, or even just absolutely. unnamed offenses.
1: Oh, just for throwing rocks, for protesting the occupation. This is an offense enough. Yeah. Yeah. So um you were saying my my brother's sons so they they spent the first 6 months in Israeli jails then actually my 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 parents spent those 6 months chasing lawyers from corner to corner from court to court until they were able to lobby for them to do house arrest instead ah. so they took them out of those jails and they sent them to my sister um who lived my sister Reen got married was married at the time and she lived in Nazareth in Rene so her mother-in-law who's an, an amazing woman. And I wish you could interview her for 1948 um, because she survived the neck uh and held on to her home in 1948. in Arrene. Um, she took them on. So my sister became actually literally their mother for the remainder of their six months under house wow. arrest. Wow. So you wow. were, I mean, it's yeah. Mm.
0: I, I'm thinking about two totally different things here. One is just kind of like the massive PR campaign that mm-hmm. has happened that I think we need to talk about. Um,
1: yeah. I, I, I want to yeah. add uh, a piece yeah, of, about just children arrested because this bothers mm-hmm. me way so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, Since 2000, just since 2000 alone, Becky, mm-hmm. 13,000 children from the West Bank and Jerusalem, have been arrested and held in Israeli detention, military detention, and they have no access to basic rights. And I think, like I repeat, is the only Israel is the only country in the world that tries children in military court. Yeah, and my brother uh, in jail. We had talked about this this year uh, when we met in Palestine. He has a giant tattoo on his on his arm that says. Um, And he tattooed, he he did the tattoo himself in in prison. Mm -hmm. And I asked him how they do that. How can they possibly do that? And they said, he said, they melt toothbrushes and ink them their own arms. And the tattoo said, don't cry, my mother. I wish we could just talk about food. (laughs) Mm. Well,
0: yeah. So let's you know, you said your dad, your dad um, was Christian, is Christian. And like, there's this biblical language about like sharing a yoke. And it's this idea that like, you're slipping into like a burdened position together, like you're willingly taking that on for someone else. And just when you were talking about all this, I'm imagining your grandmother kind of in that Position. Oh. she basically put that yoke on and this is what your grandmother did she just said like okay let me take yes. this upon me let me do this with you and and walk it, with you through yes. this
1: yeah mm. i mean they had women palestinian women mothers grandmothers they had to bear the highest sacrifices because yeah. the men were i mean men and women but then when they tried to break the household They arrest the men Um, and they, the women had to bear the highest sacrifices. They had to, you know, they had to raise a family. They had to find income. They, they, they had to put the family together. And not once I've ever heard my grandmother complain about, Mm. well, maybe once (laughs) Mm. complaining about loud children in the house. I mean, she would have lots of kids running through the house. Mm. Tata would take on all the kids and we would run through her house Mm -hmm. and, you know, her garden. And yes. So yes. Mm. And, and the, you know, and not just even women didn't just have to bear the sacrifices of their, you know, sons and husbands are in jail or killed or massacred, but they also had to keep the family together, and they also had right. to keep the culture alive and to keep the the, right. the momentum, the right. momentum together.
0: Right. And this this is where the food comes in,
1: for oh, all yes. of these things, and even and keeping the culture yeah. and the story alive and the the our existence. To keep our existence. They had, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of women co-ops that started in Palestine. Oh, okay. Based on the idea that they women need to become self-sufficient. They become, you know, their hus- the husbands are jailed, prisoned, killed. They they needed to to um to pull the family together. And there's mm-hmm. the the Palestinian community is a farming community. Mm-hmm. okay originally, the Palestinian is a farming community. we have such attachment to our land. so these women started these women co-ops and you know started growing crops and holding on to um hold you know they're really the guardians of um of our um food and food heritage and food culture because mm. these women that went through the nakba in 1948 they had brought with them their dishes and their recipes and their ingredients that they wanted and then they are now they're scattered all over mm. even in palestine they're they're scattered into environment they aren't familiar with so they had to to had to adapt to new environments they had to grow gardens they had to to come up and guard to to create these recipes and cook them for their families and and guard them for mm-hmm. Uh, from the Palestinian villages that are probably now many of them are erased.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So yes, it is. It is a form growing these gardens, growing these crops, holding onto this recipe, passing them on to the next generation is a form of resistance.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to go back to your grandmother's garden, um, well, let me ask you this: Can I just yes. ask you? I think of a garden as such a joyful, peaceful place. There's, I I saw a little meme the other day and it said um, like things that empower you and it was all these funny things and then it was like growing tomatoes. (laughs) Like basically there's no more empowering feeling, you know, so there's just so (laughs) many, (laughs) there's so many positive feelings associated with a garden. And I just want to know, was it ever possible to feel happy, peaceful? um satisfied gratified like all these things that a garden gives us like it to me begs the bigger question is it possible to feel these things um Mm -hmm. one under like such a general sense of oppression and two during such an acute time of suffering like when your father
1: was in prison Yes. yes actually yes um the story for me, it's too, this garden personally is twofold. The first part of the garden, it's for me, I feel it's an ex- like the way I garden today, and I have a small garden wrapping around my house. It really isn't, I live in the mm. outskirts of Chicago, you mm-hmm. know, it's a small garden. But I feel like um, when I left home in Palestine and I was given this opportunity to have my home with a small lot to garden, um, my love for gardening intensified. Significantly, mm-hmm. when I left my home in Palestine, for me, mm-hmm. when I was home in Palestine, um, I'll go back to that. But it, it as at my grandparents grew older and and my parents are also attached to this garden that my both my grandparents created Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like it's an extension of them it's my way to honor them Mm -hmm. so when I plant Mm -hmm. I do Mm -hmm. I I, I lose myself into this little garden of mine that has Mm -hmm. tomatoes and has actually seeds from my own grandmother's garden Mm. Um, things that like zata that would grow year after year Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do believe that the love you give into your garden, it gives you, it gives you, it gives you back. Mm-hmm. There's a saying in Arabic that goes, um, which means they planted so we can harvest and we will plant so they can eat. Mm-hmm. It's a cycle. This whole gardening is a cycle for us to survive. Mm-hmm. And so for me personally, on a personal level, the, I feel like the garden is an extension of my grandparents. It's a way to honor to honor and love them. It's a way to be reminded of them daily. They love their garden so much. I mean, when I go home to Palestine, this beautiful garden wraps around our house. It has trees that are planted mainly by my grandfather. It has almond trees, fig trees, olive trees, apricot trees, plum trees, anything you can think of. There is in that garden. And then Teta was in charge of the vegetable patch. She would, um, she would, she would do tomatoes and zucchini and cucumbers and potatoes. And um, so, t- to me, to be reminded of that, on, uh, and, and I wish I could do it year round. To mm. be, re- it's an extension of both of their love. And a garden, my garden and my father's garden, only exists because of their love to their own garden. Mm. And this is what I call the garden of my childhood. It really is where, and then we go back to this garden of my childhood where I grew up and roamed when I was a little child. It was the only piece of haven, like the only peace of mind that I, we would get outside of those, those garden walls. Going to Jerusalem to go to school, especially in the intifadas became so heavy and so hard. So it was something, it was an escape. It was a place to be um, where we can just run freely. Mm-hmm. But then that garden also, when Israel wants to, I don't know the word I'm going to use here, dismantle a home, mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. thing they would come is break your garden. So when they when when the Israeli soldiers, um, they would come arrest people, the first thing they do is either take away or tore their pantry, because this is the core of a Palestinian household, a Palestinian home. Mm-hmm. You know, we create what's called Muna, it's a supply for the whole year right? It's rice, grains, uh, um, dried fruits and vegetables and legumes. They would take it apart and dump everything on top of each other. Although this did not happen to my father when he was arrested. It didn't happen to our home, but it happened to many Palestinian homes. So the first thing they would want is they want to cripple every aspect of our life, whether it's your garden, because they know this is the livelihood. This is your livelihood. This is where they, they want to break your home. So they would take down your pantry. They would mix the rice with the flour and the sugar. You can't use them. They would go to your garden and pull up your crops. And then you extend this whole idea into the bigger picture of taking over people's, many farmers, um, after they built the giant wall, that this this apartheid wall, They farmers got disconnected from their farms. The, the land got this, they Oh, they because it wouldn't be land. on their own
0: property. They would travel exactly. to work their farms and then they couldn't do that
1: they couldn't get to their farms no longer so they 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 confiscated these lands they took that i don't know the number i read 700 i forgot the number i read 700 thousand olive trees got uprooted i i would have to get to the exact number but this 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 is palestinians love their land we're so attached to our land for many reasons a we're a farming community b our land is confiscated where that's why we become so attached to the olive trees the fig trees the mm-hmm. crops of the land
0: right Right, it's transplanting a tiny, tiny piece of it. Yes. Mm.
1: So, so yes, to me. Uh, so to me, yes, this is to me. It's an extension of both my grandparents. Mm-hmm. It's an ex- it's it's a it's a way to be reminded constantly of home, and mm-hmm. I love that it gives back this whole. The tomato mm-hmm. when it really re-reproduces and generates, it, it has this satisfying, glorifying feeling oh, that I really, really enjoy. So I this last year I brought seeds from Beit Sahur. It's a town um near Bethlehem. And um not Beit Sahur, I'm so sorry, Batir, Batir, mm-hmm. uh, north of Jerusalem. And they're famous for their Batiri eggplant. In order for me to grow this like really delicate variety of eggplant, it's such a pride and honor mm-hmm. to be able to do it in my Chicago home. Mm-hmm. It connects me to 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 Palestine, to the not just the tastes of the the food um or the crops, but it connects me to this land that is so a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm.
0: You know it's interesting because I think a lot of times when people undergo trauma, they want to be as far apart from that as possible. And I'm wondering if a garden is one of the very, very, very few places, one of the very few things that you can replicate it from a traumatic time and it gives you um, peace and uh, a feeling of home rather than a a sense of like just taking you back to the trauma. It takes you back to the few few good things.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Home is... It's not always just a physical place. It's a feeling. It's how um, it's how certain things make us feel. And that reminds us of home. And constantly when I smell that za'atar or the mint even, mm-hmm. or the, the mint that grows year after year. I love that because in mm-hmm. Chicago, not many things grow year after year. So <laughs> mint and za'atar are the, yeah. are the two herbs that would stand the the hard winters of the midwest mm. and they come back year after year and that smell alone when it pops up in the spring it just kind of like rejuvenates your soul and reminds you um reminds you like i i i don't want to just take that credit, but i think palestinians in general we, we've learned to be resilient we we've yeah, learned no kidding. to find ways to freaking cope yeah it's hard it's a, i mean
0: happy. in a way it's kind of amazing that the nation still exists 70 years later
1: And it's based on really the determination of the people and our, because we, 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 we know when you fight for something that's right, that's just that, you know, this is yours, you could fight Mm -hmm. for it with your soul. You won't just give it up. If you know somebody stole your child's bike, do you chase them? Right. Do you get your son's bike back or you tell them, forgive them. this They can have your bike. Right. It's, it's, it's we belong to the land. This is, this is our home. This is where, where this is for me, this is where I was born and raised and forever it would be home. Yeah. And And, your family chose to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You, you had asked me the question if my family left the U.S. I actually, I, my brother and I are the only members of our immediate family that are in the United States. My brother, my, the rest of my siblings and my mom, my mom and father, my mother and father are still in Palestine. So it's a blessing to, to be able to call many places home. Yeah. Yeah. But there I just this there is where where my feeling gets intensified there is when mm-hmm. I am reminded I'm so loved it's it's in their presence that I, like my my parents' presence and it used to be my grandparents presence that I'm reminded I'm a child and I love that mm. 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 Yeah. I, you know, this is so deep.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's, I know there's so much, like you talked about this moment to moment, uh, you know, it's a, it's a moment to moment occupation. You know, it's not like, Oh, there's this one terrible event and then everything goes back to normal. And then it's another, it's a moment to moment occupation. Do you just get used like, and your family still lives there and I'm sure they have many, many, many options to leave, but they've chosen. No, we're going to stay here. Do you just get, I don't want to say not. I mean how do you <laughs> i just think about the panic that we yeah, had at the I, I, beginning of covid and i'm not trying to mock us as americans but it was almost like people i mean <laughs> uh, uh, any little sense of where like one thing i think we can say about americans is like we just we have an overinflated sense of our own control and if we feel for yeah. one second that we're not in control we completely yes. lose our minds and you guys have found a way to live without control over the situation and you found a way to live with dignity when you are being.
1: I love that. I love that you said that. Yes. Uh, Indeed. I, I, you know, yeah. like how, how do you do, how do you do
0: this? What are the lessons here? Uh, I, how do you live moment to moment when it's a moment to moment I, occupation?
1: At the moment occupation you uh and and i i get so sad when i say Palestinians are so resilient we are so resilient but it's hard being resilient it's and you to, shouldn't you right up. right right you yes, shouldn't it's have to so be hard yes it's so hard to get up every day my mother the other day was telling me she was so i called her and she was so frustrated because she had missed an important meeting in ramallah mind you our house from ramallah is about 10 minute car ride should be a 10 minute mm. car ride but what divides Ramallah? Um, I don't have words of wisdom. I'm trying to get around it. I mm-hmm. don't have words of wisdom besides you just do we it. are resilient people, yeah. but it's so freaking hard. We get up every day and we do it because mm-hmm. we feel like we are right. This is where would Palestinians go? I mean, they want to push us where they want to push us to the sea, but wh- where would we go? Well, and if everybody to...
0: leaves, then it really is over.
1: Yes. That's yeah. true. I, I even feel guilty for leaving sometimes. Mm-hmm. I feel guilt like people ask me. Palestine for me is my mother and father too. They live there. They cope with this occupation every single day, like every Palestinian in Palestine.
0: Yeah. Sorry, finish telling me it's, about your mother. What happened? She was trying to just so go, she, to a 10 she's trying to go to
1: just yeah. a 10-minute just, just a meeting in Ramallah. It, really, nothing for work, work meeting. It's supposed to be a 10-minute ride. There is a checkpoint. One of Israel's most vicious checkpoints outside of Gaza is this Qalandia checkpoint that's the, that's right on the outskirts of our house. It's about a two-minute car ride from our house. And if you're stuck at this checkpoint, they could close it at moment's notice. They could close it for no reason. They could create... They. It's the most chaotic Checkpoint. Yeah. yeah, that's a mm-hmm. cripple society. That's yeah. to to mm-hmm. to prevent you from moving freely. To mm-hmm. to um absolutely. And I can tell you stories. Yeah. Even during- it's to demonstrate yes,
0: power. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a, it's a power. That's why it's not a conflict because it's not an equal power. No. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with op- when oppress. We're dealing with an occupier. We're dealing with an oppressor here. There is no equal sides to this conflict. Mm-hmm. So my mother couldn't make it to this meeting, and it was such an important meeting that would determine a certain path in her work future and she didn't make it to this meeting because the route took her about two and a half hours
0: for a 10 minute
1: ride for a 10 minute ride so then i wonder how do people do this every day i do too i live there and i want i still how do we do it every day we get so frustrated by things that don't go our way here if we wait in line for longer than two minutes if we oh yeah but then i mean this is this is just to to where i mean so it, it it um Right. And also, I think the um,
0: and this gets very this gets very sticky. This gets very thorny. This is where we get into the questions of like the PLO and Hamas and all that. But like mm-hmm. to also not retali- like I'm going to tell you, um, I mean, you got you got they checked your watch and you were slapped to not retaliate again and again and again in that situation yes. um, because it's too dangerous to retaliate. And then yet at times you do need to, because at some point you have to draw a line in the sand, right? And to constantly be dealing with the weight of, I mean, talk about decision fatigue. Is this the time to turn the other cheek or is this the time to finally say you, you went too far and I'm going to step up? Like this is, this is, this is, this is exhausting
1: this is exhausting and it's 70 years. You're not turning the sheikh on a one life event. This is, this is almost like in a, in an abusive marriage. Do you stay? Do you get killed? Do you? Right. I I mean, this is, this is 70 years of, uh, of ethnic cleansing, of, of uh, brutal occupation, of of oppression, of, of slapping hands, of confiscating land, of uh, taking over homes. Um, you know, it's that, like the people, the Sheikh What where, do, where, where do, they, do they expect them to go? They're already, these people are already refugees from 1948. Right. So where, where are they going to go next? So can I ask you, like, how did
0: the, um, I called it a PR campaign earlier, but maybe oh, the more accurate word what, is like what propaganda. To?
1: Well, what were you referring to? What am
0: I referring to? Yeah. Um, I think the PR is Palestinians are terrorists, they are mm-hmm. Hamas, it's one and the same. Um and the Israelis are the good guys and they are just doing what needs to be done as they are protecting their own um rights and religions. And that, Again, that that's think- it. Like
1: how how yep. does how does how- this
0: propaganda get
1: this is again how does this this happen this is propaganda this this is israel's propaganda machine that is fed by the american government as well by the u.s funded um i I always say this is u.s funded occupation we that in the united states not only we fund them not only yeah the u.s funds israel with money yeah. billions of dollars go to israel every yeah. year but we only allow america like the the uh, the us government allows israel they don't hold israel uh, um accountable right for their actions right i and guess the media yeah. is so skewed with this yeah. america is so um, i mean even the media around the world and in america in particular so skewed in certain language i mean we've we've seen organizations pop up just to target the media and watch what they say if things are taken i'm going to say this if things are not taken into context, they are not representing both sides of the story. If we're not going back to 1948, 1967, 1987, um, 19, 2000, and Gaza, and on, and on, and on, we are not really giving justice to the Palestinians. Everything that's been, um, Israel campaign has succeeded in the United States because the media also is one-sided. They are not putting, when they talk about Hamas, they take Hamas out of the context of the whole equation. Mm.
0: And how would you say it fits in?
1: Hamas did not exist. Let me remind people of something. Hamas did not. I mean, I grew up in a Christian household. Yeah. I don't believe in the ideology of how Hamas is yeah. or fundamental beliefs of Hamas. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I'm gonna tell you something. Hamas did not exist before 1987. Mm. So what does Israel justify? This the the Everything that they've done between 1948 till 19 till, till mm-hmm. 1987. All the people that became refugees, all the villages that, that got erased, all the all the, the homes, the lands that got confiscated, the people that got killed, the millions of refugees around the world. What, what is that called? Where's Hamas here? Let's do the mm-hmm. math. Israel blames the Palestinians. If it's not Hamas, it was the PLO. Israel helped create Hamas so they can offset the PLO. Elections happened in two thousand and six. They were uh, elected because people were tired of the PLO. Mm -hmm. And Palestinians have the right to resist the occupation. Right. So I mean, it's like okay. So you rape a woman, you rape a woman, you rape the more. What's supposed to do? Lay there. Right. So again, I, I get so fed up with the media here it's just because everything is taken not there's no context to that unless they put it in the context of this occupation that Israel is an occupying power yeah. since 1948. The story doesn't, have, doesn't, doesn't equal up.
0: What would you wish? Until for Palestine? we have
1: a leader oh, I I I want Palestinians to live in peace and dignity. Yeah. I um
0: yeah, no checkpoints. No. No permits no to points. go visit your own hometown. No.
1: I, I'm going to cry saying this because mm, I'm sorry, May. Mm. Oh, my grandmother passed away, and she was stopped at a checkpoint, Becky. Oh, May. My grand, my grandmother. I thought she was 93 because we don't have documentation of her birth certificate. But then they found out she's almost 100. She was 99 oh, when my. she passed last year. To get her from our house that's now in Area C, to get her into her hospital in Jerusalem. The ambulance had to stop in the middle of the checkpoint, and they wanted to transfer my grandmother into another ambul- ambulance. This 10-minute process would have killed her. Oh, my. I say sometimes, was was she aware that, was she unconscious? I hope she was. Seeing that a 99-year-old woman is going to be transferred to another ambulance in order for her to get to the hospital, oh, that and she is... always said, "I wish I I I live a day to see my kids live with dignity," and she didn't. But oh, I I do wish it would happen if, in my lifetime. If not in my lifetime, in my kids' lifetime. Oh, amen to that. Because seriously, enough is enough.
0: Amen to that. Amen to that. Oh, I just want to give your mother, your grandmother so much honor. I give her so much honor and respect. I give her so much honor and, um, you know, the honor that she deserves.
1: Let's thank you, Becky. It's, uh, yeah. you know, what's funny. It's I, I do, I, um, I do a lot of talks. I do a lot of things and it doesn't get easier to tell the story. Every time I yeah. find myself telling this story of, of, that's what I'm saying for like, uh, these personalized, these human stories are super, super important. And you can talk to a historian, you can talk to a politician to give us the political context, but it's the stories no, of our is. people yeah. that will make the difference. So anyone yeah. can tell you the events of from prior to 1948 on yeah. as a as a historian, as a, as a run through events. But I think it's, I think what we mistake here in this country is we don't talk to Palestinians. Yes. We don't open up to know what Palestinians go through on the daily their parents their families they they were not used as a resource yes and it really hurts so much when i see people quote cnn and quote other people instead of referring to palestinian sources whether it's food bloggers whether it's politicians whether it's this is what i mean by power it's a power yeah yeah it's right it's uh even yeah. our food even our food and i got into this becky i got into this whole food thing as an it's funny enough because i thought it would be an escape in the beginning mm. it would be i love to cook because the way i grew up i mm. grew up in my mother's kitchen and grandmother's kitchen i grew up picking things from her garden so she can cook that can cook later in the day mm. i grew up from You know, I I longed for these things when I left home to go to college. I longed for these smells. I wanted to recreate them. And then when I created them for me, I wanted my kids to be connected to them. So I thought it would end there. It would be this just connection to home that I wanted to pass on to my children. But then the more, like I was telling you, the more I wrote, the more I, it became even harder because food is political. Food is political. Recipes are political. Actually, Palestinian food is political. Palestinian recipes are political. Anything with the word Palestine is political. Even my mm. existence is political. I spend my whole entire 20 years in America telling people where I am from. I'm tired of explaining where my whole entire existence in the United States mm. since college had revolved around answering the questions where I'm from. Mm. And
0: you are so you're so right about the importance of the individual story because mm-hmm. you can you can justify anything yes from a historical or political perspective but it's the individual story that shows the character of a people and
1: And shows the pain
0: yes and when you hear about a child being slapped because her watch shows the wrong time that says something i I i can't speak to the whole nation but it says something about the character of the person who does that and that that character was tolerated and generally in situations like that that character is a there's a culture of that character that's perpetuated yes.
1: and that's the importance
0: you know, that's the importance of the story
1: yes. you know even take it i remember for like national uh holidays right people raise the flag we celebrate i, I remember coming to the u.s and i'm like oh my gosh people can raise the flag mm. It was, mm. it was crazy, a concept for me. And then mm. I bought a home. And then on July 4th, they put flags everywhere in your neighborhood. And I'm thinking, wow. I remember going through national like events in, in schools. Like when we have school like uh, school events, plays, whatever. Um, you Even carrying a flag in your backpack to get it to school was an act of victory. Wow. Victory. Victory. Wow. Therefore, you saw. I don't know if you saw around social media. You know the whole watermelon thing is because we couldn't carry the flag, so we carried watermelons instead. Wow, Palestinians are resilient. I don't know if it's by choice, but be. Well, it is by choice because we choose to get up every day. Yeah. And exist. I think this is what it is. We choose every day to exist. Yeah. We choose every day, despite the complications, to go to work, to go to school, to miss a meeting, to plant a garden, to plant a garden. Yes. Let's
0: talk about this recipe of your grandmother's.
1: (laughs) Bless you. (laughs) Bless you. My goodness. It is. um, Yes. (laughs) Let's lighten up the mood, Becky. Let's do that.
0: Let's go back on and talk about this dish from your grandmother. Why? why did you choose this? Tell me your memories oh. of this. Well, first of all, tell me the name of it and tell us what it tastes like. Um, listeners, tell, the, tell them.
1: It's it's called msalwa. It's really, uh, if you don't speak Arabic, Ain is a hard letter to pronounce. Msalwa, mm. um, I think it's like means... I, I, I don't know. It's like a very poetic name for something. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to describe it. It's like dancing in something. And I'm guessing the rice is dancing in the lentils, something of sort. Oh. But it's It's a vegetarian vegan dish. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's exactly how my grandmother loved to eat. She didn't really like a lot of meats, except mm-hmm. Kifta. I mean, she, she, she wasn't vegetarian, but she loved her garden. She loved anything that grew in her garden and cooked anything and everything in season and from the garden. Mm-hmm. And... Um, this visit, she just loves to eat vegetarian she, lived her, she loved her herbs, her greens mm-hmm. specifically, um, but this dish is a humble, humble dish and it came probably out of necessity she mm-hmm. didn't come up with this dish, this dish is known around, but it is a very cultured dish in Palestine called, or heritage dish, it's called salwah. Uh in Lebanon it's called differently, I think they call it amjadara safra, amjadara mm-hmm. refers to lentil and rice safra means yellow, so it's like ah. rice uh, yellow red, uh, yellow lentil rice something like that but oh, this is okay. my grandmother's way of cooking it it's a dish uh it tastes it tastes like heaven to me it is so humble mm-hmm. that you can make it and so many of the palestinian dishes are really humble either seasonal from seasonal ingredients um or what's fresh in the market or in you know produce that's available that season but really mainly we cook so much from the pantry and this dish came out of necessity it's it's rice and lentils Not two humble ingredients that you probably find in every palestinian pantry or probably pantries in general mm-hmm. they're inexpensive they're hearty protein filled they're filling they can feed a ton of people with not mm-hmm. with not much not with not much right mm-hmm. so this dish is dear to me is a i love the flavor of it and i love my grandmother making it and it's it's the last dish i cooked with my grandmother before she passed Mm. Um, I went home to Palestine 2018 um, before COVID. Mm. Um, Teta was strong enough to cook and still take care of all of us. And I remember her cooking all the time. And this is one dish I told her I wanted her to teach me how to make. Mm. And I pretty much just wanted to like watch her and observe her walk slowly through her kitchen from her small tiny kitchen, you know, chopping, from chopping the the onions. I just wanted mm. to observe every step of her movement. Mm. doing this dish um not that it's complicated to make but it's just the way she makes it she mm. she literally finds joy even in chopping onions mm. um, so I, it was the last dish I um uh, here we go again mm. I uh, I watched her make mm. and we laughed so hard because she could she, she it's a and she might, grandma, like many grandmothers, doesn't measure when she's cooking. She <laughs> she has an instinct. She has a nefas in cooking mm. that no one else has. She just knows when to do things and how much to add and when to stir and just brilliant like that. Mm. Um, she probably wouldn't articulate that adding, finishing the dish with olive oil will add this creaminess to the dish, but she knows it works. She knows that it will add this the silkiness mm. to the finished dish. It tasted amazing. So many people reading about this dish, many people make it in the winter, but funny mm. enough in my family, Teta made it always in the summer. And the way she loved to eat it is straight out of the fridge. It's something that she would make. It's uh we didn't describe it yet. I'm sorry, I'll go back. It's a London rice dish cooked with cumin and turmeric mm. and loads of olive oil and onions. Mm. Super, super humble ingredients that you could find at any mm. time. Um, but so delicious <laughs> and so healthy. It is so healthy and it's almost like a pudding consistency, but super savory. Yes. And it's and what made it yeah. so significant in my family is that the way, and I can share pictures with you because mm. I photographed this whole time and video, gra- video mm-hmm. videotaped her entire process. And I oh. cherish this, this so, so stinking much mm-hmm. just because it's like, it's so alive in my memory, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, the way she just, she doesn't put it, she doesn't leave it in the pot because it's not appetizing like that. She would say mm. she would serve it in individual dishes, mm. round individual dishes. They're usually intended for soup or they're not quite deep for soup, but maybe pasta. Um, and she would do, do individual serving bowls and literally would line the top of her two shelves in the in the fridge with those bowls. Anyone that steps foot into her house will walk away with a bowl oh. or a plate. I don't know if it's a bowl. It's mm-hmm. a plate. Mm-hmm. They will walk away with the plate, and it's her garnishes that make this dish so incredible. How many of the garnishes? Mm-hmm. The, 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 it's it's and I, I remember asking her. I said, Theta, why do you garnish it? How did you learn how to garnish it like that?" Her answer was "Min mukhi, from my brain, and oh. laughed hysterically saying that. I I just Teta had this special. She was so soft to touch. She was she always smelled so good. I just remembered her touching her raw onions and mixing them with sumac, staining her fingers and putting them on top of them, mm-hmm. on the top of the, the salwa plates. Each plate gets a portion of raw onions uh, flavored with sumak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this, you know, berry, uh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a sour, tangy berry, not like yes. lemon, but it's yeah. a, it's a, it's not like lemon sourness, but it has, mm-hmm. it's just like a, I don't know. It, it has, it has a, a bit of flavor. a fruitiness to it. It's totally fruitiness. I love that. Yeah. It has this beautiful burgundy color that mm-hmm. it really pops um, against the, the white onions. Mm. And she would put that on top with parsley. And she had the way of garnishing it. And I remember doing it like my artistic way. And she and and I, I remember putting it on my story on Instagram. <laughs> People are like, not Tata's way. Yeah. It is true. It's just <laughs> the way she placed each of her garnishes mm. on the plate. There's a um, thing of parsley diced parsley there's a thing of sauteed onions and just and it, you're a cook becky you know that sauteing onions for 30 to 45 minutes on the stop is an act of love on its own <laughs> i mean she would sit baby these onions and you mind you she's standing she's she yeah. was what she uh, she was in her mid-90s at that time she's uh, a cane on one hand and a, and a stirring spoon in the other and patiently nobody helps patiently stirs pot stirs the onion until they perfectly caramelized in order Mm. for her to garnish the dish at the end Mm. Mm. so this for me is is a dish that she made for me every summer i came home from college she knew Mm. how much i love it so she would welcome me with so many dishes but this was my absolute favorite i don't know why it's just the way she made it the way she garnished it the way it reminded me of it reminds me of summer in her home Mm. uh it's just the feelings um (sighs) Mm. That come with it. Um mm. and it's 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 sad that it was uh, the last dish we cooked together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sometimes mm. and yes, it um it um it's um and it just represents how Teta likes to eat. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and in abundance, mm. sharing the food, and, and you know, she barely eat the little bowl, she all the food would go around Mm. to be shared with my cousins, with my father, with my uncles, neighbors, if they come by, anyone. In fact, the ice cream man, I remember the Rukab guy would come in the summer days, and if she made it, she would pass a bowl to him. She had Mm. the spirit in her to always share. Mm -hmm. And she didn't just share her food, she shared her life, she shared lots of things, I mean, Mm. yeah.
0: Well, I think you've done a wonderful job of honoring her. And again, I just give her all the honor in the world and agree with you that learning English was nothing compared to the impact that she had on your generation and your parents' generation. And I'm so, so, so honored that all of us can, you know, hear this about her and, you know, be inspired in this way. By her.
1: Thank you, Becky. She is like many, 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 many Palestinian grandmothers mm. who not only safeguarded our recipes, but really protected our generation. Mm. And I, I wish that we continue to carry that torch to, with our mm-hmm. children. And when I tell you, I started this whole thing just as a memoir um, of a food diary, if if I mm-hmm. may say, even just to kind of connect my kids to, to these flavors and taste of home Mm-hmm. That I constantly, I remember in college, creating, I mean, we couldn't make easy phone calls. It was so expensive to call internationally. Um, I remember it was like almost a dollar a minute to talk. There was no FaceTime. There was no WhatsApp. There was none of this stuff. And uh, I'm not that old, but I mean, it was old enough to have that technology back then. So I had to cook from instinct. And I'm grateful for all the times mm. that I spent on her counter. Um, you know, Tata didn't, she was a lot of, she she didn't mind us kids asking questions. <laughs> she in fact mm-hmm. she in fact like I would ask her I I started saying that she doesn't cook by measuring like many grandmothers mm-hmm. not just Palestinian grandmothers, general right. grandmother. They yes. just don't cook by measuring no. ingredients, even baking. I mean, she she would just throw things in there and then I said, "Dad, I'm writing a recipe." And I said, "How much cumin, uh, turmeric did you put in there?" And she would go, Yabnati, my dear daughter." She always called me daughter. Mm. She, she, to her, she always told me and my sister that we're not just her granddaughters; her, we are her daughters. Her, therefore, her love for us is tripled. Mm. I'll never forget that. Mm. So she always called me Yabnati, my daughter. Mm. And um, she said, "You would just know." Mm. She said, "You got to." You would just know. And watching her, you mm-hmm. you need to be in the present. When she cooks, all her senses, I, I, I love that recipe so much because I got to watch Teta engaged in all her senses. So many times, we're so busy that we would come when the dish is finished mm-hmm. or when she's starting the dish. But on this dish, I wanted to be present the whole entire time despite my children mm-hmm. who are in and out and yelling and somebody wants something. Mm-hmm. But I was present throughout the whole thing. And I, you know, was reminded how engaged she is with all her mm. substances when she cooks. Mm-hmm.
0: Therefore, it is a her form of therapy for love. her.
1: It's a form of therapy that she carried through the to escape, her mid-90s. Yeah. This is amazing. It was her way to share love. Yeah. And show love. Yeah.
0: Can I ask you some questions about making this recipe? Yes, yes. of course. Okay. So first of all, um, the red lentils I've only ever used green or brown lentils. Tell me about these.
1: Red lentils. You know, the beauty of red lentils, and they're important in this recipe, is because Mm. I'm going to double check that they're called red lentils. Okay. I'm pretty sure they are. But uh, red lentils, the beauty of them is that they're almost like split. Yeah, they're called red lentils. So um, you can find them, by the way, they're super easy to find. Um, So many brands make them. Um, I have used these. Oh, I've good. used these. Okay.
0: I, you know what? I even have some in my pantry. I think I oh, know them by the um, the Indian name. I think it was an Indian dish. I oh, like, uh,
1: yeah, uh, Indians use them for the, uh, it's escaping my head. I know exactly what you're talking about. The dal. Um, the Actually, dal, I think yes. dal
0: just means lentil. So I'm not sure. I don't remember what I used them for, but I have some of these in my pantries. I so, have used them. Yeah. But what makes them different?
1: What makes them different is they fall apart completely and become creamy on their own. Um, oh, they are shelled. Shout- oh. Uh, yeah, they are shelled and there are a different variety of lentils, but they are, they, uh, it's almost like split peas. You know how like they're not, they yeah. don't have the, the hard shell, the outer shell. So green lentils or brown lentils have the shell still intact to them. Yes. And they, those are good for pilafs. They're good for jebdara, which is a rice, yes. rice lentil pilaf. They're good for like certain soups. Like uh, there's a, there's one on my blog. It's a Swiss chard and lentil soup. It mm-hmm. uses this kind because they hold their shape. You want to taste them like you would do, like you would with chickpeas. The red lentils are a variety that would actually fall apart in the cooking process. So they would turn your entire thing into, um, it would be, completely creamy without really adding cream so this this porridge i don't know if i want to i don't know what to call it pudding savory pudding porridge to kind of engage the the idea of it it kind of sounds bizarre it's like a summer again my grandma i think probably the only person that eats it in the summer i think reading recipes it's something that people eat in the winter as a soup Mm -hmm. or hot but my grandmother loved it cold and we would eat room temperature when it's she first makes it but then once it sets, you just, we never reheat it. We just eat it out of the fridge. I see. And okay. that was the beauty of having this dish is that you can serve people and feed people on a moment's notice. And this I was see. something my grandmother was brilliant at. No matter when you show up, what time you show up, she never complained. It was always something for you to eat. Mm. Starting mm. from the drinks she made in the summer to she preserved like all fruits into like drinks that you could drink, or she called them, um, 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 that you would drink... All year long i mean you just concentrated with sugar and you dilute it with water and here we go she got drinks uh, <laughs> apricot drinks for the whole entire year when apricot is only available in june i mean she That's was amazing. brilliant like that and yeah. she 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 had ways of making food that extended for a long period of time and just mm. fed a lot of people um mm. and she made it some she made it seem effortless and now mm. that i cook and clean after myself it's really not effortless. <laughs> no
0: it was truly <laughs> truly a labor of love well that answers the the question about the red lentils it answers the, my other question because in when you submitted the recipe you referred to it as like a porridge a couple of times and so i was thinking this really do you think that's a good ref- reference to anything that's name? what i'm like, that's that's what i'm it sounds like yes like if the lentils yes. really truly completely break down and then the rice gets very soft it's almost like a um almost like a cream of wheat um have you ever had it's cream almost of wheat like
1: Oh, no, maybe not. It's it's no no. It's actually my kids love cream of wheat. It's like it's it's almost like that consistency. And yeah, actually, to kind of put it closer, there's a uh, an Arab soup. Um, mm. Palestinians, uh, Lebanese, a lot of people cook that soup mainly uh, in the winter in Ramadan. It's shawarma adas, lentil soup, and it's usually made with red lentils. And it's the same idea, except this one is a lot. The lentil soup is a lot runnier. This one is thickened with rice, just to make it mm. like a porridge or okay. pudding i wanted to almost call it savory pudding because it really has oh i got it rice pudding
0: i was i was yes, just thinking our, it sounds like rice pudding except for it's yes. not sweet it's savory
1: no so we can call it okay. the savory lentil pudding it's um I it see. is but i always try not i try so hard not to change the name of things just because mm. i wanted it to stay mm-hmm. traditionally culturally yes to of preserve course. the recipe is to keep calling it masalwa underneath. I could call it savory pudding or something. Yes, but I've always wanted to kind of hold on to Agreed. the original name of Agreed. the recipes. Yes, um, I've done this early on in my when I was writing. I would I did something called zatar. Um, zatar across means. Well, almost translate into cookies, but they are, these are savory. But when mm-hmm. I called them zapat cookies, I thought about it. Actually, one person brought it up. They're like, May, why didn't you call them akras? They're not cookies. But in my head, they are like cookies, but the Arab name is akras. So I kept it that way. It's almost yeah. like the same thing that you wouldn't change del to lentils, right? Right, right, right. You would and, call it del because it right. has a significant cultural yeah. significance to this, uh, to, you know. That's its name. Yeah, that's the So yeah, I, yeah. Um, you know, I've learned, but, you know, to describe it to your audience, I mean, people who don't often cook with these ingredients mm-hmm. or eat them in this way, this is a lentil kind of savory porridge yeah. or like, like consistency of um, rice pudding.
0: Yeah this is this is really helpful yeah and it was funny that you said it's called umjadra safra in <laughs> yeah. in, in, in in um in lebanese because when yeah. i first read this i i actually was in the car with my husband last night when i got it and i was like oh this sounds a lot like umjadra. um but it's it's the difference really is the, in the red lentils and because it's so it's so much softer um the texture is so softer. different it's
1: and not so as good. many
0: onions on top
1: right exactly and it's it's although my grandma loaded it with onions i mean uh, i don't know if you got a chance to open the link i had to instagram it had some of the old photos this was the instagram link i sent you Becky. was the last time i cooked with my grandmother this was it those were the photos that i shared with that dish and finished dish and um those you'll see how much onion she puts on top. This yes, I onions. will. I, mean, I she, will look at that,
0: and I will link it for everybody listening. I will link to that. No, I didn't was, get a chance to, but yes, I didn't. I, I don't. I
1: looked for, for it on my website. It's not on there. I for some reason I don't know. I thought I put it, but I don't know. It's not there. So anyway, I linked you the the Instagram just for your reference or to see if you want. But um, yeah. I, again, Palestinian cooking isn't complicated. It's things that are available. Um, again, we went through a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of hardships as Palestinians. So a lot of things had to come from the pantry. A lot of things had to come easy. We 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 there and it, it really, it's not expensive cooking. It's inexpensive. No. It's things that you find in your. And that's why I chose this dish for many, many, many reasons. Mm. And I've shared many of them uh, above with you. But it's something that kind of resembles like how humble mm-hmm. the cuisine, but rich and mm-hmm. delicious, and really doesn't. I mean, we don't need to fuse these cuisines to make them delicious. They are delicious. Agreed. And like, um, I think you asked, it was so cute how you asked like in the rest, of what's so important? I said, "Data would always serve this with like, a." if you see her table, it would be all these like all these plates. And then yeah. there'll be bowls of like pickles, olives, radishes, onions, green onion, on top of the all the onions, green onions. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I cucumbers, know. <laughs> cucumbers. But this is how Palestinians eat. You eat, always yes. a said, eat, With your eyes. We eat first with our eyes. So that's what she told me about. How did you come up with this garnish, like in this particular order? And she goes, from mukhi, like from my brain. And then she goes, because you eat with your eyes first. So you need everything for her was always embellished so beautifully.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And... It's, and the
0: sumac onions. Oh, I love sumac onions. Sumac
1: onions. I mean, Mary, and if you want to take the pungency out of them, Cheteta didn't do that, but you, I, my mother does that is you add olive oil to the onions with oh. the sumac. And then once they marinate, they will become actually sweet. You don't oh, taste the puffiness.
0: Oh, the olive oil is, that's yes, funny. That's what I've always. That's what I've always missed. I never realized that. Yeah, I've sprinkled on sumac on onions many, many, many times, and they're good. But I'm like, these aren't quite like you buy them. I wonder mom what I'm doing is wrong. Is the opposite
1: of Teta. Teta loves her onions pungent. My mom doesn't like the pungency of garlic or onion. She loves them, but she doesn't like the pungency. Of all her recipes from Luchia for like anything that she adds onions and raw onions and garlic, she would marinate them first in olive oil. Okay, because that would take the pepperness out. Okay.
0: I, I want to tell you, it's been a blessing to hear this. I'm very excited to share this story. I'm I'm really looking you, forward Becky. to it. I will send you a draft before I do that. Um, okay. Now, for people listening, I do want to remind them to check the show notes because I have links, of course, to your um, to all your accounts, but specifically to um, the picture of your beautiful Tata and um, her making this recipe. I'm linking to that. Also to okay, okay. Um, the map. That you mentioned of. Yes, just, I'm going to send it to you. Yeah, the first, only the first 20 years of what was, or sorry, the first yes, 40 years be, of I what's think, been a I, 70 I year occupation.
1: Yes, I think the map is either from 48 on or 67 on. Okay. And then
0: um, I think there's a couple other things that we mentioned, or maybe you even already sent me. So everybody check the show notes. There's lots more information in there, including especially how to follow May and just, um, yeah, to keep learning from her. Is there anything else that you wanted to share that you didn't get to?
1: No, I just want to thank you so much for using your platform, your voice, your, uh, you know, providing a space for us to tell our stories, our personal stories of, you know, and I think that's super, super, super important.
0: It is absolutely 100% my honor. Um, I really feel enriched for knowing you and for hearing about your grandmother and your mother. Um, Thank you I really so do. much. Becky. So,
1: yeah, have thank a you. wonderful day. Thank, you, you. Too. thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. Have Take care. Day. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you again for sticking with me, listeners. Uh, several things just to remind you of quickly. First of all, would you please subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any upcoming weekly episodes. They come out on Wednesday mornings and I would love to have you join us again. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, would you please, please share it with a friend or family member. This is the best way for the podcast to grow. And that is super important to me because I put a lot of time and love and energy into um, creating this. Then um, thirdly, I would love for you to check out the show notes there are a lot of graphics infographics maps um, things like videos things like that that may has given us for um, additional information as you as you consider uh, her story and also she is on the board of directors for a uh, nonprofit in Palestine that seeks to provide a community library for every child this is super important to me I have always taken my kids to the library at least once a week. And I think this is a wonderful initiative. So you could look into that as well. Um, With all of that said, thank you and have a great week, my friends.